As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. to the Athletic Football Show. Today's Tuesday, July 5th. I'm Robert Mays. Great show for you guys today. Ollie Connolly of the Read Optional and editor of the Gridiron is here to do our latest mailbag. Before we dig into that, though, I wanted to remind you, next week on the Athletic Football Show feed, Luck, our narrative podcast series about Andrew Luck from the wonderful Zach Kiefer is going to be dropping on Monday, July 11th. All six episodes will be in your feed on July 11th, you are free to use that week as you please. We will not be doing other shows. If you want to binge them all on Monday, be my guest. If you want to space them out, listen to one a day. Also a great option. Please, please check this out. I cannot recommend it enough. Zach has been working on it for about five months. The perfect person to tell a story I think every single one of us who is engaged in the NFL wants to know more about. So again, Luck coming to you July 11th. Please remember to check that out. For now, though, I am thrilled to welcome return guest. Very happy to have him back, Ollie Connolly. Ollie, good to talk to you, man. I really appreciate you doing this. Yeah, thank you for having me back. I was trying to figure out a guest who would be available shortly after the 4th of July, <laughs> and the I, I landed on someone who doesn't celebrate the 4th of July. It was perfect. <laughs> Yeah, my booking request when when the producers all woke up on on like the third and realized it was a Monday, I think uh, was out of control. Yeah, uh, it's listen. Sometimes you got to use what you got, and I, of course we're always happy to have you. Though we talked before the Super Bowl, and if you have not read any of Ali's work, he's one of my favorite football analysts. Just does an incredible job breaking down the league, and we're excited to dig into this. So first one here from Samuel Bornhorst. Really good one right as we get ready for training camp. So which position group has the largest talent gap between the group they are opposite on their own team? I imagine the Ravens wide receivers are not going to have much fun doing one-on-ones against that secondary in August. This is perfect, and that's what I thought about <laughs> it as. Who's going to have just a shitty time during one-on-one drills during camp? So I have a few answers to this. What did you land on? Well, my first snarky answer was just that the Steelers quarterbacks throwing versus air. I think that could be that could be rough for everyone in the building when they turn and go, oh man, we did that. That was our offseason, right? That's going to be a, a rough day when they sit around the table. Um, I keep coming back to that Detroit group, not necessarily in one-on-ones, but when they're just scrimmaging and if they go good v. good, and you've got that Detroit O-line, which is position by position loaded, and yep. there's you know, plenty of question marks about is that line good enough to to get into deep drops and all that kind of stuff, but just flying off the ball, you know, if we're just going good on good uh, goal line or red zone and we're thumping the ball, that O-line versus that front is a complete and utter mismatch. And I think that would be a a rough day to be involved with. Now, maybe Aiden Hutchinson changes all of that. You know, he has that kind of tenacity and and all that stuff, but that is a complete mismatch. I, they were on my the one on my shortlist. I did not include them solely because of the Hutchinson thing. Like, let's yeah. say he hits the ground running and he's good, and hopefully you get a little bit of development from the year two guys, the interior guys. They take a step forward in the second season, but I think that's a good one. The Ravens wide receivers against the Ravens corners is a very good one. In a similar vein, I had the Packers wide receivers going against the Packers cornerbacks in practice. I mean, 
<laughs> Christian Watson having to deal with Jair Alexander for the first couple of weeks of camp might be a rough go of it for him. Yeah, I don't think he's ever even have to separate from man coverage, right? So he steps into day one in the league against <laughs> the best bump and run guy. That's that's trouble. I like Bateman. You know, I, I think Bateman was really good down the stretch and never got the ball. And there's no wasted movement in his uh, release, in any of his route running. I think he has a chance to be great. And for that Ravens offense to, to become something, they desperately need a three-by-one beater, right? The backside guy. And I know his profile, his, his body type doesn't really fit that, but that's how they used him last season. And there was plenty of times where I thought he was playing out of his mind, the Cleveland game spring to mind, and just Huntley isn't the guy to to play on time and in rhythm to take advantage of that necessarily. So I think Bateman will, will be much better than people are giving that, that Ravens receiving call credit for. I, I This is a very pro Rashad Bateman podcast. I'm very <laughs> excited about that. I'm, I'm more bullish on the Ravens passing game and just that support system than I am with the Packers. That's for sure. Uh, the Browns interior defensive line against the Browns Oof. guards is another one that I had. I mean, they're just going to be <laughs> in a cage. The entire, all of training camp is going to be a rough go for them, especially because they're young. You know, yep. Perry and Winfrey having to go against Joel Batonio for a couple straight weeks and that Cleveland humidity is going to be pretty rough. Do you have any others? I had the, the the Jags D with a similar thing where they're really interesting and fun and they can play a bunch of positions, right? But when it's just one-on-one and you're playing Brandon Scherf, it's like, <laughs> I'm not sure that's a fun day at the office. You know, the idea of a malleable front is really fun on Sundays, but you know, when it's in the, the darkest days of training camp and yeah, it's day seven, it's it's, it's not as fun when you're, you're giving up 30 pounds on, on Brandon Scherf. I also had the Seahawks corners against the Seahawks wide receivers. I mean, that's just, that's not a fun day at the office, especially nope. early on. All right. Next one here. Scott Connolly. This is a lot of overlap here, as we'll see. says, my name is Scott. I'm a huge Green Bay Packers fan from Glasgow, Scotland. I've been watching the NFL for over 10 years. However, I've only started to appreciate the more tactical, strategic side of the game since signing up for The Athletic and more specifically the podcast. I was wondering if there are any books you could recommend to help my understanding of the beautiful game. I wanted to ask you this because we've answered this question a lot on the podcast over the first couple of years. I feel like you have a particularly applicable background here to answer this as someone who's had to seek out the NFL. And so what would you say to this? What would be the resources you would recommend? Yeah, I think I've been asked this question 5,000 times in 10 years too. It's like (laughs) people want the the go-to Bible to figure this stuff out. I think, look, Chris Brown, Smart Football, still the, the pair of them. I would recommend anyone going through his Grantland archive, right? Because you get the narrative arc of the why, which I think is more essential when you start to really scratch that itch for you rather than really needing to know all the checks and all these things you could just get from ripping through a, a playbook. I really love um, SC Gwynn's The Perfect Pass. Again, you get this narrative arc up to the true spread era, right? I think you get one of the best nonfiction writers of all time essentially taking on football. Um, so that one, it kind of, to me, comes down to what you want out of it. You know, if you're just trying to, like I said, scratch that itch, those, those more surface narrative ones, I think work. I think if you're aiming to do more coaching, scouting, you have to go obviously more specific, whether it's Cody Alexander, Dub Maddox, some of those more modern ones, there's the Bill Asperger Bible, there's all the Bill Walsh ones, which are obviously essential, but that, that kind of thing of, if you're trying to watch tape in the season or, you know, track it real time in the game and that's what you want out of it you just have to get in a room or on a zoom with someone that that's the the only way i'm sure you know this if you you have to sit and watch with people it's it's the only way yeah. to learn i think in the uk something i've pushed a lot with people is you know we have all these local teams with really unbelievable staffs right but they're not dense staffs so there's like four people but they work <laughs> like crazy so just email them ask them can i come and can i watch film with you they would need quality control assistance like it's you know like nobody's business that they need any extra pair of hands they can get so if you're really interested in that side of the game go and be hands-on and go and find someone even to watch film online there's plenty of people who will do that with you and talk you through how they're viewing the game in real time or go and seek out a local team and ask the oc hey can i sit in a meeting room with you can i maybe help take notes is there something you would want me to do whether it's depth of safeties whatever it is there's no I don't think the books are obviously fantastic, but I think that there's just no way for substituting sitting and watching with someone in real time and going back and forth with them to, to figure out what they're, they're watching. Yeah, I think that seeking out any sort of clinic like that where it's an actual explanation as opposed to just reading something is going to be helpful. I mean, I the amount I learned for the first time sitting and watching a couple of years ago, I went through with a play caller through an entire playoff game and just every single play call, why it was happening, all the things that were taken into account 
when you were making that decision. I mean, just every single layer to it that you never, ever think about that. Again, getting back to the why is this happening? I learned more in that two hour session that I think you can learn reading 10 books. So I completely agree with that. I mean, I think that it's difficult there. You run into walls if you're not just sitting there actually hearing the explanations. Yeah, because you also need the call, which, you know, particularly on the defensive side of the football, so much of it is read and react that you're trying to then guess off the film why the linebacker did that, but he's probably taking his beat from the feet of the, of the center. You wouldn't know that without the call. The play call you're saying there can walk you through that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I, it's just it's just really hard otherwise um, to get it Yeah, in book forms. Difficult, I think. I mean, I, I would, as I said, highly, highly recommend all the narrative ones. And again, if, you, if you're not looking to go to the coaching side, that's obviously way too deep for people. It would be to go and get the Chris Brown books. And um, there's the Pat Kerwin one, right? Which is a good start, of course, I think. Yep. And then, and then as I said, go through Chris Brown's Grantland archive. There's some unbelievable stuff in there. And then the, the Gwen book you mentioned, I was actually looking yeah. back at my shelves to see where it was, because I know I have that. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's also a good suggestion. All right. Next one here. Jeff Balstead says... My question is, with so many new head coaches coming from the Shanahan zone scheme and installing this scheme into their new organizations, will this saturation of the concept throughout the league swing future head coaching trends back towards defense? The Bears, for example, went with the defensive head coach in Eberflus, and they paired him with a young and -and up-and-coming coach inside the Shanahan offense in Luke Getze. Although you risk losing him to another team if the offense is successful, you can become a proving ground for up-and-coming coaches who will be able to fully run the offense call plays for future interviews. I, I'm curious what you think about this because you've done a lot of thinking and writing about kind of the saturation of this offense and what it's meant, but this is a little bit of a different spin on it. Yeah, and it's funny. It's just like the NFL right to expand the Rooney rule to now you have to have uh, minority people coaching the offensive side of the ball, and then the owners will swing all the way back to saying, let's go hire some defensive guys. That's just <laughs> classic of the NFL. Um I'm, I mean, it's as always, just hire the best person for the job, right? Whoever you think is going to be the best leader of the organization, that the head coach gig is so different to anything else in the building that you just need such a particular skill set that I wouldn't necessarily worry about offense, defense, because you can always go and find guys. And what's interesting with that stuff, I think we lose in the play calling. You were just mentioning that talking to a play caller. It's the philosophy of the offense. You can just rip out you know you can take ben mcadoo's playbook not to punch down on anyone but it, the concepts look the same as pretty much everywhere else around the league right it's the layering of the offense it's how you set things up for the payoff play it's the obviously in-game understanding of when to call the right thing it's the sequencing of the plays which is the the most essential part of the play calling finding those guys i mean it's the ones who give you a, a real advantage that aren't just in that giant middle class medium part of the league are, are so rare and i think just with where the league is going it's hard to not want it to still be that offensive guy. The defense is just so unsustainable year to year that as much as you might think Dan Quinn is a guy who can ring 5% extra out of a, the defensive side of the ball, just the way the rules are with the league, the way the cap works, I'm not sure that's still your your most efficient path to being a, a perennial contender. I totally agree. And, that, and I think that if you look at the guys that have been hired away and how they've been replaced with that tree, it's mostly from offensive staffs, right? So let's go down the list of guys that were either assistants that are now offensive coordinators or play callers who are now head coaches off of that tree specifically. Matt LaFleur, Kevin O'Connell, Shane Waldron, Mike McDaniel, Mike LaFleur, Nate Hackett, and now Luke Getze was hired away as an assistant to be a play caller. All of those guys, this little brain drain and the plucking that's happening right now, are mostly from offensive staffs. So you look at all of the guys that the Rams have lost, LaFleur, Waldron, now O'Connell, Liam Cohen's just sitting there at Kentucky waiting to come back and be a part of the staff. But at the center of that, McVeigh is always there. And now we're going to see it with the Niners really for the first time because McDaniel was always there even when LeFleur got hired away. So now you have Bobby Slowick, who was a defensive coach for them, is now their passing game coordinator. And Brian Greasy is now their quarterback's coach. So for the Niners, this is the first real time that he's had to completely restock the offensive staff. But again, those guys are there. So even if you're having to shuffle between these coaches and guys are getting hired away to kind of populate other staffs with these ideas, you still have that one central figure leading the offense. I'm not sure if the Rams were cycling through a new offensive coordinator every single year with a defensive-minded head coach. They would have the consistency that they've had so far. I think that's really, really difficult. So I think that threading that needle is tougher. The only real examples where it's been coaches kind of adjacent to this system 
that were hired away with defensive-minded head coaches were Arthur Smith in Tennessee and Kevin Stefanski in Minnesota. And I think, honestly, the results from both of those are kind of encouraging in that the offenses were fine. They weren't as good as they were before, but at least they were passable with these ideas kind of being borrowed by the next guy in line. So if you want to look at those and say, ah, we like our leader kind of head figurehead of the organization type person in Vrabel will steal ideas from what the offense was when Arthur Smith was here and see if we can survive. That has worked okay in Tennessee. I just think it's a little bit more difficult than having that guy at the center of it all and having his underlings be the ones that get hired away. Yeah, and even those two examples, the Tennessee one in particular, the second half of last season, right? That's a players not player, sorry, players not plays system, right? As soon as Henry goes out and they lose this natural uh, organic flow between the run and pass game, they bounce between two different setups, which is this is our run game, one backs in, this is our pass game, they're different backs in, and the whole thing collapses and they become like the 28th best offense in the league by EPA, right? It's So who is the person who can make that change naturally happen? It would usually be the, the head guy from the top, the same way that he mentions that the saturation of the schemes there, all those guys he mentioned are bumping away from that scheme, right? LaFleur is the the smash mouth spread and this really intricate, cool second phase, multi-progression passing style system that is only really, we expect, going to be replicated with Denver. Maybe Hackett includes it, maybe he doesn't. Stafford and McVeigh go to the super spread. They just ditch a bunch of that stuff and say, we're yep. super spread now. They, they run a similar kind of passing system. And Shanahan says, I'm betting on this Trey Lance guy that there's never been a true power runner in this outside wide zone then boot scheme and we're going to integrate as much of the pistol stuff as we can or at least the setup base of the pistol and we don't know exactly how he's going to fuse those two elements the same question that mike mcdaniel kind of has with with two in miami so I, I would never get caught up in the fad of we can just pluck these guys out because they're the next hotshot guy who know the general system. The brilliance of those three guys is that they're already ahead of saying, okay, all this Fanjo stuff is coming. And they did it the offseason before, right? We all caught with the Fanjo stuff week six, week seven. Oh, it's spread across the league. They knew it was coming. They ditched everything last offseason. You want to go and get the guy where you can spot down the staff, whether it's a tight ends coach, whoever it is, who thinks like that. Who is going to try and go against the trend? Where's the guy who's like Greg Roman? He says, bleep all of that. The market inefficiency is running like crazy and getting the special quarterback. That That's what you would be trying to find every time. And to find those guys year on year as they get plucked away to go and run their own organization, I, I think by year three, you would be struggling quite mightily. Uh, that's exactly right. Because like you said at the beginning, you can take the playbook. A- anyone can email the playbook back and <laughs> forth. That's not what this is about. It's about understanding where you have to grow, where you have to change. And I think that's the most difficult part about understanding who's going to be a really, really good offensive coach for a long time is that there has to be like a natural curiosity about the way that you see the game and understanding the larger ebbs and flows of just how the ecosystem of the NFL works, right? Like this, this defensive system is coming. What do I need to do to solve for it is something that would be really difficult to understand in an interview. And that's why some of these guys who just happen to be the coaches and coordinators from the hotshot offense around the league, thinking about Matt Nagy very specifically in this conversation, (laughs) it's so much more complicated than that. And that's why identifying these people is really fucking hard. Yeah, I mean, you have to be constantly stress testing your own design. It's the same way that people build in their own tendencies to then purposely break them, right? It's to, to find those guys who think in that way, that natural curiosity, the egolessness to say, I understand f- full well that this thing was being run in the 80s before me. It's not that everyone's calling me a genius and a wonder kid. I fully understand I got nothing to do with designing this thing. I just know it's the right time in the evolutionary cycle of the league to run this stuff now. And I've adapted it in some cool or interesting or different fresh way. What's the next thing that I can either pinch, steal, tweak a little bit? And just finding those guys, like you said, if, if you could just identify them and it becomes incredibly difficult when these modern staffs with those guys have so much control, as you said, over the offense, Shanahan and McVeigh, where you're getting murky reports about, well, he calls third down, but he's game planning first and second down. And you're trying to disseminate who exactly is doing what on game day. Well, he's game planning third down, but then he calls it on game day. And I don't even know as an owner or a GM how you would necessarily get to the truth unless you have a great relationship with the other guy to go and ask him. And I also think that having that person at the top who sets that tone of curiosity is really, really important. You mentioned the Ravens. The Ravens don't have an offensive-minded head coach, but they have an organization that is hell-bent on continuously evolving. 
So if you have that guy and he doesn't call the offensive plays, but that's the mindset that you're always bringing into a given season or a given couple seasons, I think that's what's really important. And I think yeah. a lot of those guys just happen to be offensive coaches. I think the Reed is the best example of this where he will designate Kafka, right? And I know Kafka's moved on now and he'll probably be the next hotshot guy, I imagine, after this season with the Giants of he's designated as in the offseason, you go through eight high school games and find me a play right? Yeah. That, that's not normal. You know, that's the, when you're Andy Reid and people are saying, hey man, you're going to be in the Hall of Fame as soon as you decide. And you've got Patrick Mahomes and Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey. It, you would imagine if you were just designing this yourself at home, you could come up with some pretty cool plays to take advantage of those guys. And he says, no, go to eight high schools, find me their season of games, find me three, four plays that we can install into our offense. That level, as you said, curiosity, that's just not usual. He's 64 years old, but when I'm 64 years old, I, I'm not going to be trying that hard. I can promise you right now. It's 30 years away, but I understand what's coming. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Next one here. Johnny Ponapart says, hello from Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm a big fan of the show. You guys frequently mention how important it is to have a QB who can get you a bucket. My question is, who are some of your favorite non-quarterback get-you-a-bucket players? Feel free to take this in whatever direction you want. Include players from any era, offense, defense, etc. He mentions Deshaun Jackson as an Eagles fan who is someone that comes to mind. The way that I interpreted this was I, I kept to offense, and it was your favorite skill position players who can produce independent of the play, the quarterback play, the supporting cast, just gets you something when you need it on their own volition. That's the bucket of guys I was choosing from. Yeah, I agree with that. In my mind, when you send that over to me, I immediately think of the the isolated receiver or tight end, you know, three by one backside guy, and he just is going to demolish everyone. And everyone knows he's getting the ball and it's going there anyway, whether it's DeAndre Hopkins, AJ Brown, PKJ Green. The one that stood out to me for this is obviously just Prime Gronk, the Denver Drive, which is the all-time we are completely fucked here. Let's just go to Gronk and we'll just throw it to him six times in a row. And he might get his head cleaned. He might get his knees taken out, but we know if the ball's in his vicinity, he's probably coming down with it. And they know he's getting the ball. Same with that. And then same with kind of, I do like the blurry guys as the pop-out bubble, not necessarily the the vintage Harv and Tavon Austin type guys, but Devante is obviously the go-to example of the yep. pick it and flick it pre-snap RPO of they've sagged off Devontae because they're terrified of him and that's a bucket through reputation right of they're terrified of him they're gonna they're gonna sag off we'll just flip it to him and he's gonna pick up six and maybe more because it becomes a punt return and that's easy yards because Devontae's reputation gets them the bucket I it's this one's hard because I think that the system is so specific but in my I have the exact same thought just flick it to him and see what happens was Debo but the mm -hmm. offense is so designed to get him those opportunities it's hard to extricate those two things the other one was just Jamar Chase like what he did after the catch <laughs> last year I mean just give him the ball and just let him go to work Keenan Allen is one I thought of just because he's always open in any offense they've ever run with any quarterback they've ever had so he's somebody that it just feels like independent of circumstances will always be there. Kyle Pitts is soon becoming that person where isolated receiver just let him go to work in any situation, no matter what. And then Hopkins and A.J. Brown are two other ones that I had for very similar reasons. On a running back level, Nick Chubb. Like it, he's <laughs> been top four in yards after contact per attempt every year he's been in the league. It doesn't matter who the quarterback is, what the offense is, who's on the offensive line. He's going to get you more than you thought he was going to. But that was my group that I came up with. Yeah, I think back-wise, you know, people get upset when you try and say running backs have some kind of value. Th these guys who run with a skip and they accelerate as they climb through the line. Those are the guys who at least will get you back to the line of scrimmage, even with a busted play. It's not the guys who tap dance around. Saquon had this early in his career, right, where he's tap dancing back there forever and then it becomes a TFL. Jonathan Taylor is a great example of no matter what, because he can gather speed as he cuts and accelerates up the field, that he will at least slam it for two, three yards, which, you know, isn't the most efficient <laughs> thing in the game, but is worthy of something, I think. Jonathan Taylor's in that conversation too, I, I think now, but those are the two guys back-wise that definitely came to mind. All right, 
Next one here. Chase Kurtz says, Lindsay's last episode, you discussed position coaches, and it made me think of Jeff Stoutland in Philadelphia and what he's done for the growth of Jordan Mailata. Mailata's story of a 20-year rugby player with no football knowledge to four years later being a top 10 player at a key position seems like a real Disney movie. Is this a product of the system the Eagles run, or is Mailata just an athletic and physical specimen that would have hit on most teams with good O-line coaching? We've gotten a staggering number of Jordan Mailata <laughs> questions in the last like three or four months, so I felt like this was the time to kind of finally pull the trigger on this one. I think there's a lot to dig into here. How would you answer this? Yeah, I mean, I could do a 12-hour series on this, I think, so I'll try and condense it as much as possible. Uh, obviously, not anywhere. I, I think with these things, sometimes we do get guilty, certainly myself, of getting close to pseudo-coach worship and not enough credit given to the individual player. Yeah, It, it is just unconscionable to me that a guy could go from not knowing how to strap his helmet to being a, a certifiable all pro caliber left tackle in four <laughs> years that it just doesn't you know if you told me you could have a 10-year runway and the guy would maybe tag on at the end of his career but well, maybe i can see it but that that is just so unusual i don't think that you could say you know um anywhere he went necessarily it would work it, it's just, it almost still doesn't make sense to me how it has worked the thing i will say is since the new cba we went through that weird early period right where offensive line play was so bad and Vaughn was having his pass rush clinics and it just felt like oh my god they've not got enough practice time they cannot figure all this stuff out and we've I wrote about it I I, yeah. I spent like two months writing about <laughs> it I mean everyone you talk to is like this is an epidemic it's over yeah. like there's no coming back from this it was really bad and since then they've got together as a club right they do all the o-line clinics Duke Mannyweather's doing his thing and they've spent a lot of time in having the personal o-line time they realized they had to catch back up to those those edge rushes and what you learn very quickly, particularly in Pasper, I think there's a misunderstanding sometimes between fans and coaches between the, the, the run blocking side of the game is the really, really difficult, really technical part. And that's what floors me about my latter. I know that him turning around the corner as a freight train is like unbelievable, right? It's just pure <laughs> athleticism. He's so exceptionally nuanced already in the run game stuff that blows my mind the pass pro stuff is all really just angles and leverage and then he's a bigger more athletic human being than everyone else so i mean i remember tony baselli saying how he would lay cones outright shut his eyes and it would just be about setting to the set point and then opening his eyes to check that he was on the correct angle so you can just rep that over and over and over again and if you land in the right spot angle leverage then at that size, you have a chance in pass pro, right? So that part isn't that flabbergasting. That's why you would take like a Falale and you hope in three years, get him to the right set point and his, his mass takes care of the rest of you. The run game stuff, I have no idea how they figured that out so fast. I, I can only think that to have a complete raw piece of clay that they have built from the ground up because he had no bad habits, right? You go to Charles Cross in this draft who you'd say maybe in four or five years could be a top five guy at the position, right? Footwork is an absolute mess, absolute mess. But you can find a way to say he's got this weird stance where it's really crouched. Then he's got this elongated kick step to make up for the ground he has to cover. That will take years to correct, right? But once you correct that one thing, the stance, then everything else falls into place. The pad level naturally drops and everything will slot in for him. Similar, I think, to Garrett Bowles, year two, year three. Well, think cross is terrible. Then he'll be really good. That's what I, how I think it's going to go. With my latter, I imagine they were like, I cannot believe this. This guy doesn't even know what he's doing. So we can, from day one, if this guy's invested, and that's what I'm saying, clearly he has been so extraordinarily invested in getting this right, right? So they must have just been giddy with the fact that they could just build this straight from the ground up, no bad habits. And when you slot that guy in the right stance with the right kick step, essentially, how could it, how could it fail? <laughs> he's, he's in my mountain. I also think beyond the coaching, there's really something about stepping into an organization with guys like that in the meeting room, right? I mean, when his rookie year, Jason Peters was there, Brandon Brooks was there, obviously Lane Johnson is there. Having that culture of offensive line quality and just the the way, and obviously Jason Kelsey, the, I don't know much about Jeff Stotland as like an individual position coach in the way that I would about a Bill Callahan when I've heard about some of the actual specifics of how he teaches the position. But my understanding of Stoutland and just the way he works with his guys is, especially with Kelsey kind of at the center of it in the run game, it was very collaborative in terms of problem solving. It's like, well, why if we did what if what if we did it this way? Where like we're doing this pin pull stuff and we're pulling him instead. And just that kind of openness to let's see how many different ways we can solve this problem in the run game, I think is just a good overarching philosophy to have with guys. I think that is one of the reasons that their run game has been really successful. 
under him is just because they're open to so many different solutions. And I think stepping into something like that is really beneficial. The other side of it, I was really surprised about the percentage of true uh, true pass sets he took last year. Because when I looked at it, I was like, oh, I wonder if it's a low percentage, like the, the Ravens a couple years ago where they're putting him in a lot of good positions. It's actually not. He had 45.7% of his pass blocking snaps last year were true pass sets, which is kind of middle of the road. Like Miami's Mickey Mouse offense is at like 37, 38%. Trent Williams was like 38%. On the high end, the Raiders and Colt Mill were like 55%. So it's not like they were shielding him from a lot of these disadvantageous situations. He's just really good. So (laughs) I think it's a combination of really good coaching, walking into a room where you're going to get all of the support that you can possibly want from the veterans around you. There's a culture of offensive line development and success. And he's just a really good athlete who clearly is invested in being really good at this. Yeah, I think that the point on the pass sets is is important. It goes back to what I was saying about that is the side of the game. I think you can teach someone who did not know. It, you know, Stanford teaches the three nose rule, right? Is you've got the defender's nose, the quarterback's nose, you've put your nose somewhere between those two. You intersect those points <laughs> and stand on the line. And if you've never played the game, you wouldn't have any kind of consciousness about that being wrong of coming from a different system of oh well you know my stance asked me to shuffle here or i played in a vertical set system in college which no one does in the nfl right you have none of that it's just okay i put my nose here and i close the space between myself and von miller i got that i got giant arms it's and so i do think the past pro stuff you can see the world and that like i said that's where having Kelsey Brooks, those guys, the nuances of the double and climb and the things that are needed in the run game, cutting off the backside, that stuff takes people, you know, it takes, you hear vets all the time. I'm sure you've talked to Jeff Schwartz about this in the past. By year nine, like, I feel good. I've got this down. The knees are starting to creak. <laughs> the legs are starting to go, but they finally just got it down, right? For him to have that so early, that that's the thing that, that blows my mind. Mitch would always talk about, I remember being at OI Masterminds last year and just talking about how if you don't fuck up, they can't beat you. Like that, that's the, just the foundational aspects of pass protection is that if you get to the right spot, the, all they're doing is waiting for you to screw up. So having none of those bad habits and having nothing that's going to give them a slight advantage from the start, I, I think working from that way with the ground up makes total sense. All right. Uh, oh, go ahead. I was just the last thing back to a point you said, I think it's really cool that they have kind of as a community said they have to solve this problem. And I'm not saying, you know, the online community has always had this thing of it's such an unusual position. They're an atypical personality type often so that they kind of have this camaraderie anyway. But them getting together with that uh, online mastermind stuff and saying we need to solve this at large. Let's help each other and figure it out. I, I don't, that rubbing off, as you said, into the meeting room of, I don't care if we're going to trade Shaq Mason in the offseason. I don't care if you're getting cut in week three of the preseason. We solved this stuff as a unit. That is somewhat unique to the O-line room anyway, and has only become more apparent as they went into this new CBA era and they were, they were so behind the eight ball. Watching, I'm telling you, watching Mitch work with Rashawn Slater last year and just having Slater pick his brain for, I don't know, maybe a half hour, 45 minutes off to the side. The way the masterminds works is there's you have a little presentation and you watch film on certain guys, but then afterwards there's a lot of mingling and you guys talk in and you know, Ryan Jensen's kind of holding court with a group of younger players and, and Mitch and Rayshon Slater just going back and forth about well, what if I did this and if I kick this way and if I set this way, just all of the intricacies of that and just tapping into the knowledge and just the deep understanding that guys who played the position for a long time have, it, it's really unlike anything else. And that's why it's just so cool to watch. All right, next one here. Brett Ungashik says, big fan of the podcast, hardly ever miss an episode. Here's my question. I've been wondering if there's an NFL phenomenon that I'll call the final touch fallacy that affects the offseason decisions of otherwise very smart contending teams. The most obvious example of this was a few years ago when the Chiefs drafted CEH one pick above T. Higgins as the final piece to unlock their offense. I also wonder if the Bills made two final touch fallacy decisions this offseason with Von Miller signing and the James Cook pick. An inverse of this would be Tampa drafting Tryon the year after their D-line what led them to a Super Bowl. So my question is, do you think this phenomenon exists in front offices? Would they get close to the finish line and abandon more patient, value-driven decisions? And do you think we might be viewing this year's Bills offseason in a different light a year from now? This is a great question. 
It's an unbelievable question. I, I think that when you get specifically to the running backs, it absolutely exists. You know, you can go through Trent Richardson or, you know, any number of them where it's like, what, you guys think you're that close that you're, you're running back away and it gets into the whole running back value conversation that I think the CH one is a great example again of really guys that are running back away when you could, they could have seen the timeline themselves of the Tyreek situation and, and all those contracts converging. So I think that's true. I think Miller is different in so much as having a, dominant i mean he had an eight it was he had his fourth best pressure year last year he was in the the, the elite 80 plus pressures territory or you know roundabout there that unlocks everything else for you on defense right pressures everything so that to me is different as kind of we think this is the final piece of butts over the top because if miller the only way that defense gets five percent better is having a dominant pass rusher who makes ed oliver gregory so all those young guys they've drafted better somehow and i think miller's the kind of guy who can do that there's certainly some teams, I think, delude themselves into thinking things are transitive year to year. You know, you see this, this happens right around this time too, as we in the media start doing preseason and you say, well, they had a good defense last year. It must be good this year when so many things do not carry over from year to year. Defense particularly is so volatile. So I, I do think it's true there. If you try and say, well, we know we're solid with this. So let's put the one piece on top beyond our value board. Then I think that is a real thing. But there are some teams, you know, the stakes are different. The expectations are different. And you, you can't just pretend they're not there, right? The, the owners are tempestuous. Fan bases have expectations. So you, for the Bills, with them, I get that contract could look terrible in two years or whatever. Or if Miller gets hurt, which is possible at his age, that that's an issue. But where else should they have put their chips that would have made more sense to get the specific thing of, we want to not be a five-man pressure group in the postseason. We want to be a four-man pressure group. Von went to the Rams last season, turned them from a five-man pressure group to a four-man pressure group. They get to the Super Bowl, they go back to the five-man group for that one game. But they got there by having him change their pass rush profile, right? The the Bills need to find a similar thing because if you blitz in the postseason, it's a wrap. So I, that one is the one where I, I think that one does make sense, but I, I think it's a, it's a real thing. I can understand because you're looking at the Von contract and... The, the real issue, the, the year that you might regret is that third year, that 2024 year when he's going to be 35. He's a 21.8 million dollar cap hit, dead cap hit that year. And putting the guarantees into the third year is where it's like, okay, man, that, that's a real gamble that they've made. But I can also understand it. You know, it's about opportunity cost. And it's, he's gonna, it's a 21 million dollar cap hit that year. You know, the cap is going to continue to go up. There are some contracts hopefully coming off the books for them that year. Even if it is a fallacy and even if it's probably wrong to get tempted into that line of thinking, I also just that's how I would think about it. <laughs> like it's impossible not to fall into that every once in a while. And I think with with long term, and I think opportunity cost is again the right way to think about it. With the T. Higgins thing, that one's so clear, right? There were so many different ways they could have gone with that pick. And with the Bills, I don't know, like you just said, how many different ways could they have gone with that money or the money that they'll be spending two years from now that are going to be more valuable than what Bond Miller yeah. can bring them? I think with specific positions within the draft, that's when you can get a little bit over... That's when you can overstep a little bit, where it's like, all right, if we get this one thing then we're going to be fine. And we're using four years of a rookie contract to go after this one thing. That to me is pigeonholing yourself in a way that you're ignoring important value. But with contracts, I can, as long as your owner's willing to pay it and shell out the cash, <laughs> like the bills were this off season, I think the opportunity cost there is lower because there's more flexibility involved. The draft is the one, particularly when teams trying to ID and move up for someone that always makes me shudder. You know, you think of yes. Dion Jordan or something. It's like, oh, we need a great pass rusher. Let's move, let's move future picks to go and jump in the draft for a guy. We don't know if he's going to be good or if he cares about football. That That, that is a real problem. It, it reminds that the question operates almost though value works in a vacuum and it's the same from team to team, which I just don't think is true even with a hard cap. It, it is similar to me with baseball where everyone wants great arms and they cost 20, 30 million dollars, whatever they do. Now, if you're purposely tanking, there's no value in you having the 20, 30 million dollar arm, right? But you will ditch it at the trade deadline and someone will pay for it because they think it can squeeze out something for them in the pennant race, right? If Vaughn makes it so that Russo, um, or just that the whole defensive front is 3% better, that the goal for them to go from, we keep banging our head against the AFC title 
on the road, if it gets them home field advantage through the playoffs, if it gets them over the road in a in an AFC championship game, no matter what it looks like in three years, that's just what they're operating in route in now. It's championship or bust every single year. And I think it's fair, like you said, at specific positions to to operate that way. Especially when you're that close, I think it's worth chasing a championship because not that many teams are. There aren't that many teams in a given year that have the roster to win one and the urgency to try to go make it happen. And if you're one of those teams, I think it's okay to leverage yourself a little bit to push that a little bit further. I honestly think that you can make an argument that trading up for Kair Elam in the first round of the draft is more of a, we need this final piece (laughs) for our defense move that is uncertain than going and getting Von Miller and dropping him onto your team. Yeah, I do love the Olympic though. That one gets oh, all of I'm ex- so excited about it. But that to me, that smells of we need this one corner and this is what's going to finish it off for us. I understand the thinking. I would have done the exact same thing if that's how you had them tiered. But that's what we're talking about here where it's we're going to give away a future fourth round pick to move up for this guy because it's the final piece of our defense. And that can get you in trouble every once in a while, even if in the moment, I totally understand why someone would do it. Absolutely. And, and the Elon one's a great example because I, as you said, I absolutely see the plan that we need a matchup piece, that 6-2 body. He can play inside. We'll lock the inside. We'll zone up the outside. Lovely. Love all that. And as you sat, as I'm sat here now talking about the value on a podcast, I'm like, well, I don't think I would do that. If I was in the meeting room discussing Kyrie, I'd be like, do that, do that, do that. F- phone it in now. Phone the office. Let's get this done. We need that piece. So it, I just, unless you're in the room with those expectations and you feel that close I think it, it's a, it would it would just be it would be so hard not to think that I don't think anyone believes they're a piece away in the NFL. If, honestly, I think they all understand that you know injuries happen and, and everything like that. But there are only certain guys who tilt the field so much that are worthy of saying or, or giving what they gave to Vaughn, and he just happens to be one of those guys who was available when they were what they felt was either one or two pieces away. It's also, I think, when you have that much faith in your infrastructure, your plan, the way that things are built up, it's like, hey, you know what, if we miss on this, everything else is so stable that we feel good about it. It's also the people you're betting on. Like, Von Miller is Von Miller. He's not just a talent. Like, what he has been, the standing in the locker room, and if you give out that contract, the message it sends to everybody else, the ownership he's clearly already taken as a person within that building everything I've heard about Kyrie Elam as like a human being invested in something like this, all of that stuff. It's like, we're betting on how stable and secure everything else is here, where if we happen to overreach a tiny bit for one of these pieces, the foundation is so rock solid that we'll get back to where we need to go. Even if there's a slight moment where things are a little bit unsteady. Yeah, I think it comes down to, do you have one of the three best quarterbacks in the league? And is he under contract? And if That's, you do... That gives you a lot you, of steadiness. Just do whatever you want. If you and, and that would be the cutoff. I think you have to be in that three range. Even if you get to six, seven, you start talking yourself into maybe that Falcon team who just fell short the Super Bowl, right? And you start saying, hey, maybe we're one piece away. That's where things get squirrely. But if you're in that top three and he's young and you know he's going to be great for a long time, well, I don't see any downside in taking as many big swings as you can. I also think that it goes back to the draft picks because that's what the Chiefs were doing for a while, right? When you're going to make the Frank Clark move, you think we can be aggressive because of the guy that we have. But if you're just signing Frank Clark to that contract, it's much different than giving up multiple high draft picks to go get him because then you're sitting there. The money is always flexible if you want it to be, but you can't get the picks back. The picks are not flexible. Those are assets and resources that you no longer have. And when you're trying to navigate these spaces, when you don't have that underlying collection of young, cheap talent. It's so much harder to build out the rest of your roster. The Vaughn thing is just money. You only have a certain amount of it, but there is a level of wiggle room there that doesn't apply to when you're giving away draft picks. I just think that's different to me. Yeah, that, that, that I think nails it of what the, the proper philosophy would be, which is we do nothing about the future, but we're saying we have to spend the cap. Like you said, if it can work under the cap, happy days, but we don't give up anything that takes it beyond this year outside of cash. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's a really important distinction that I just came to in the moment. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIP. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, next one here. Wes Froschner says, I know you guys love pondering hypotheticals, so here's an interesting one. Let's say Tom Brady, for some reason, demanded a trade from the Buccaneers for this upcoming season. What kind of return would the Bucs expect to receive? On one hand, he's old and already retired once. Who knows if this would just be a one-year rental? Maybe he's worth like a second rounder, but on the other hand, he's the GOAT and still somehow at the top of his game. Wouldn't it be an insult to receive less than what the Lions got for Matthew Stafford. I, this could go a bunch of different directions. How much would Tom Brady be on the trade market right now in your estimation? It's an unbelievable question. I've been thinking about it for ever since you sent me this. It's all I can think about. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> because you want to say, well, Brady would have the freedom to pick his own spot. You would think that just the, you know, the cachet of him and his ability to say, no, I'll walk away means it could be nothing, right? Because he could just say, I'm going here please send me there or that's what's happening or I'm retiring. But then would his ego allow him to go for like a conditional third round pick? It would feel like a stain on the greatest career of all time. If he said, yeah, send me to Miami for a third and it becomes a two. If I play all 16 games, it has to be a one. I think for the value of the one now you could not do multiple as the, as the, buying organization i don't think but it, it would just feel weird to not have a guy still somehow at the peak of his powers the best of all time to not go for at least the one all right so let, let's play this out okay the, I, i'm starting with the teams that would be most interested and most desperate to make this happen okay so you're saying it's just one one Philadelphia is the first one that comes to mind, right? <laughs> if he was just available right now and you dropped him onto the Eagles, the Eagles have two first round picks in 2023. If I'm Howie Roseman and he's available, I do that right now. I do that in this exact moment. I don't care if it's one year because the Eagles could win the Super Bowl this year with Tom Brady. So I think it depends on the team that I think it depends on the team, how close you are, because if I were Philly, I would probably do that where I would just give away both of my first next year. Miami traded away all their picks this year. So I think that maybe you're in a slightly different position, but if I were the dolphins instantly, I would give away probably my first and maybe more 
in next year's draft to get him. Those are the two teams that would come to mind quickest for, all right, who is most interested in him? And that drives the price, right? Desperation drives the asking price and what it ultimately ends up being. So I think Vira Philly, I'd give away two first round picks, but I don't know how many teams are in that boat. I think it's also a conversation where what the front office would do valuation and what the owner says, this is happening. I don't care if it's three picks. I want that guy to be in Canton and there'd be at least a plaque somewhere that he played for <laughs> the Dolphins, right? Stephen Ross would give up four. He doesn't care. He's 80 odd years old. He's going to give up as many draft picks as is needed. I think the real pivot point is the Niners, right? They, they've they wanted to do that deal for however long. I think he wanted it at, at some point. Would they do a one and Lance and just say, we're rejecting on the whole Lance of it. We did all that, all those moves. Would they do something involving Lance, do you think, if they had a shot against Brady this year to go win a Super Bowl? Probably. Based on like everything that I've ever heard about that situation and how quickly Kyle Shanahan seems to change who his flavor of the week is at every single position on his roster, I feel like that would not be shocking if they ultimately did that. Oh, man, this is a, that's a really good one. I really appreciate that question. All right. Next one here. Uh, Oliver Blanchard says, what is one story that each of you were interested in researching or following over the upcoming season? What are you all looking forward to seeing? I don't want you to give away anything that you're working on, <laughs> but I feel like this is the right time. Like, It's very funny how, I don't know how you work with this, but there are times in the calendar where I just can't think about the season. Like I'm thinking about football, but it's all looking back. And that's a lot of June. Like post-draft, it's so tempting to start looking forward to the upcoming season. But I'm just I know how many preview shows we have to do in, in July when training camp starts. So I don't let myself do it. This weekend was kind of the first time where I'm just sitting there and now I'm starting to think about, all right. What are the ideas? What are the stories? Like, where are we going here? Fourth of July is usually when I turn the page. So this is very good timing from Oliver's question here. The, the thing for me, I mean, I just put together this 200-page preseason guide that is out now. So I have, I have more takes than anyone in the middle of June about every <laughs> single team and every position group, I think, than anyone around right now. Of the scheme nerd stuff is that is a thing for me. How can Mike McDaniel fuse the wide zone and the RPOs with Tua? That's the one that is just that's the one I I will wake up at three in the morning thinking about that <laughs> genuinely because I just don't know how it works and, and I'm fascinated to see how he does that. Uh, Obviously, the, the Chiefs evolving, <laughs> the sim pressures, the uptick in that, the four by one stuff. Away from oh, the big one for me, which I've written about recently, is is how Dennis Allen figures out the safety room, which I know sounds like a too deep a cut. It's like loving a really nerdy Fleetwood <laughs> Mac song, but that is a bonkers situation. If you look at losing Marcus Williams and how he tried to replace those guys, and I think that was the best defense in the league last year. And so to, to rip that Jenga piece out of Marcus Williams and try and plop in there Marcus May and Tyron Smith Matthew, I just don't know how that, that works. So I'm fascinated to see that. Outside of the, the scheme stuff, what's going on with the NFL internationally is really fascinating. They just changed that entire leadership structure, essentially. So much of the focus was on the UK market, on London. Can we do a team? Do they just play in London? Are they based out of London? Do they stay in Jacksonville for tax purposes, possibly, but then go and play on Sundays <laughs> over in London? Do we have to build a division? And now they've changed the whole infrastructure. They're all about the NFL academies. They've launched the one in, in Africa, right? There's this giant push into Germany because there's just so many more eyeballs engaged in the game there now than there is even in the UK. So I really am interested to see how they kind of are exploring this international expansion now. It seems like they've decided maybe we've tapped the reservoir a bit in terms of London and the UK. And now they're trying to spread wider into, obviously, they've been there in Mexico, the Canada, the Germany is, is the next frontier, and then obviously into Africa. How do you feel about that as someone who's probably watched the growth and that coming saturation in the UK pretty closely? Do you feel like they got it to where they want it to be? Do you feel like they could have done something different? If they're going to move on, how do you feel like that effort looked over the last decade or so? 
it's a it's tough for me i I spent most of it living in the u.s so i almost feel like a fraud when i'm asked about this stuff from afar and then moving back here the whole focus being i mean a lot of their international branding had a union jack which i always found strange it was so nfl uk centric and then within that little sphere it was only london right we want to own part of a stadium we'll do a stadium deal they wanted to put a franchise there that was clearly the the idea to ignoring scotland ireland all these other places they could have done even the north of england I kind of like the idea of having these team-specific markets. You know, they've done that marketing deal now where every team kind of has their own yep. specific market to build up a culture, and those make sense. The Steelers in Ireland and, bring, you know, bringing the terrible towels over to Ireland sounds like an unbelievable time. I would love them to do that. That that sounds like a blast. That, that I think, is an interesting mode they flip to of zeroing in. Let's make this a Rams place. Let's make this a Patriots place. Um, so I'm interested to see how that unfolds over the next four or five years. So my answer here is I'm just fascinated by the different stages that teams are in building around their young quarterbacks. So obviously we have this group of young quarterbacks that has come in as the successor to whatever the golden age of quarterbacking looked like as the Rivers and the Roethlisberger's and all those guys move out of the league, Manning, Breeze, Brady, eventually you'd have to assume. And now we have this young group. It's not just that the young group exists. It's now these teams navigating where they're at with each of those young guys, right? Mahomes, we're, we're 2.0 here. This is the, how are they going to navigate this next stretch of his career after the first version is now over with Tyreek Hill gone? They're replenishing with younger players. How do they kind of move through this space? The Bills and Josh Allen, like now they are in go for it mode. And not only in go for it mode, but also have moved into a different version of their offense, right? If you look at their skill position players, the combination of Steph Diggs and Gabe Davis is very different than what it looked like with Beasley and Brown and Diggs when they first started assembling it. So how you move through that space. The Bengals and the Chargers, I think, are in a really similar spot. Obviously, they drafted the guys the same year. They had tons of financial flexibility coming into this season. So now we kind of have this, all right, a couple more cheap years left. This is how we spent. The Bengals did it along the line. The Chargers did it on defense. So how all of these teams – and the Ravens, I think, are in a totally different place, right, where they're coming to the end and they're trying to figure out like how much have we squeezed out of this version of who we are offensively. If they fall short this year, do they pivot in some way, even if Lamar is still there? They go a different version from, the, from Greg Roman. How does that all change? So all of these young quarterbacks at these different stages of who they are and who their franchises are, I'm just fascinated by how you build around that at every single step of the way. And I think this season is a perfect test case for it. I agree. I think that dovetailing on those examples you used too is the Miami and Philly situations of inoculating yourself against your quarterback being bad and betting on the wrong guy. <laughs> We're going to surround you with as much as possible, but then ensure ourselves with all of the future draft capital. So if we want someone else, whether it's a veteran in the trade market or it's moving up in the draft for Levis or Young or whoever they think their guy is at the end of it, we can go and do that too. Uh, you're seeing th- this new era of team building, both with the likes of Herbert you mentioned there, where you have all this cap flexibility. So you go and throw it all at JC Jackson. You go and trade for Khalil Mag with this other side of, even if you don't love the guy necessarily, or you don't buy into it being a 10 year situation, still do all the stuff as if you do believe it, because you never know whether Jalen Hurts could have a magical run or he's better than you think he is. And he could take you all the way there. Or if you get out of it, you've ensured yourself to have some flexibility in the future to go and get another cheap guy to plug into this infrastructure where you've got all the expensive all pro players. Yeah, I mean, it's just every year the quarterbacks drive so much interest about the league. But I think this the makeup of the position right now for exactly that reason. You have this group of young guys that is proven that was proven instantly, right? I mean, that is so hard to do. Look at what Trevor Lawrence ha- had to deal with last year. What Herbert and Burrow were, where half halfway into their rookie season, it's like, all right, we're, they're here, they're here. Like we know what they are. Like this is these guys are going to be around for the next ten years. That doesn't always happen. So just the makeup of that group of young quarterbacks, I think, is so so intriguing and i think it's going to be hard to look away from that all right i think that's all we got ali sincerely appreciate the time very very good to have you on the show we will do this again hopefully really soon i mean talking about all those preview shows we're going to be doing over the course of july and into august if your brain has already been there for a while i feel like i am obligated to tap into it so hopefully we'll have you on sooner rather than later of course anytime all right that's all we got thank you so much 
to Ollie for joining us. Really, really enjoyed that conversation. Sincerely, if you have not checked out his work, you absolutely should. Last thing here. To close out the show, we have the trailer for Luck, our narrative podcast series from Zach Kiefer that will be in the feed next week. Peel back the curtain in a way that has never been done before in one of the most unique careers in NFL history. Get all six episodes of Luck on the Athletic Football Show feed starting Monday, July 11th, wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back on Thursday. Until then, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Please subscribe to The Athletic, and we'll talk to you guys soon. At the center of one of the greatest what-ifs in NFL history is one of the greatest quarterback prospects of all time. What if the Colts have protected Andrew Luck? It's amazing that the Colts could move on from Peyton Manning and nobody really blinked. The reason why Andrew turned around the Colts and turned around Stanford was that beast inside of him that would look at the opposing team and say, I'm going to kill you today. My encounters with him were unlike other encounters I would have with quarterbacks. He could have been a thoracic surgeon. He could have been anything. I don't think there's ever been a smaller gap between someone's floor and their ceiling. If it's 1 to 10, he's a 10 in every category. There's Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Ben Roethlisberger, it's all wrapped up one. High end, he's a Hall of Famer. Low end, he's a multi-year Pro Bowler. Like, I can't see there's any way this guy doesn't succeed. I just remember him saying, Jacoby, like, this is going to sound weird, but but can you hit me on the sideline? Because I need to feel the game right now. I I don't think I'm supposed to hit you. With Andrew, it was very secretive. Seeing all the treatment he would go through, see all the hits he would endure. It was like, man, I know you have to be injured. He gets sandwiched between two linebackers at that moment. He has a ruptured kidney. The sort of injury you sustain in a car crash, basically. I never knew what the hell was bothering me until all this news came out. And it was like, oh, wait, he was suffering from this? It was all news to us. If the people that succeeded us had put a team around him, as we did with Peyton, the results probably would have been the same. Andrew Luck has become a cautionary tale for any team with an up-and-coming quarterback who doesn't have protection. I remember both of us having a moment where we both were teary-eyed going, man, this beautiful, beautiful player is uh, not going to play anymore. I'm Zach Kiefer from The Athletic, and I'm the host of a new podcast series called Luck. It's the Andrew Luck story as you've never heard it. The series looks to answer this question. How did the greatest quarterback prospect since John Elway, the very player the Colts moved on from Peyton Manning for, end up walking away from the game before he was 30 years old? All six episodes will be released on July 11th. Look for Luck on the Athletic Football Show podcast feed wherever you get your podcast, and listen to Luck ad-free on the Athletic app. This was the Athletic Football Show.